You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, we will look at how Tarkovsky became Tarkovsky, how he found his voice, how he learned, how he evolved and got more agency, film by film, in the early days of his career, until he arrived at the point that his instantly recognizable style and voice was known. We'll start by quickly going over his uh, early student efforts, which actually resulted in a thoroughly well-made short adaptation of The Killers, and a co-direction credit on the 1959 TV movie There Will Be No Leave Today. And then we will start getting far more into details and truly dive into it as we break down his 45-minute graduation film, The Steamroller and the Violin, from 1961, before we continue through to his first international success, Ivan's Childhood, an evocative take of lost innocence in wartime, before we finally finish off the episode by discussing and dissecting Tarkovsky's first true passion project, the three-hour epic Andrei Rublev. In some ways, this is a story of artistic liberation. In others, it's a story of just instant success and acclaim. If you have not seen one or more of the three films we'll discuss today, there will be spoilers, but don't worry. These will be in compact sections after the discussion of each film and with a clear spoiler warning. If you want to jump over these sections, just go to our timestamps in the description and nothing will be spoiled for you. So, with that said, and before we dive into the actual films, I'd just love to introduce my three absolutely wonderful co-hosts, starting with Mathieu, uh, and I'll just ask each of you, because obviously now we have all been re-watching these films leading up to this episode, uh, some of us watching them even for the very first time. So I would just be very interested in hearing your overall experience and what you think of Tarkovsky's progression over these early films. Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone. I had seen his early features already, uh, Ivan's Childhood and André Rublev, but I watched The Steamroller and The Violin for the first time, as well as The Killers, the, the short film. And I guess the impression I get from it, well, The Killers is a little hard to pin down within his filmography. I guess it's just an early short. But with The Steamroller and The Violin and Ivan's Childhood, you really see Korsky starting out working within the Soviet system and trying to express himself within that. And then with André Rublev, him kind of breaking out and doing his own thing. As you said, his first passion project, right? Really the first film that looks and feels like a Tarkovsky film, even though there are definitely elements in the other two. And what about uh, you, Tom? What was your takeaways from these early films? Hi, Chris. So Tarkovsky is a director I hold in high esteem. I admire his craft, even though all of his films don't resonate with me in the way that some of them I would consider masterpieces do. I'd seen all of his features uh, prior to discussing the films today, though it was interesting to go back and check out his earlier shorts and see how his talent and, and skill had been developed. So I'm looking forward to discussing them in more depth today. 
Excellent. And uh, finally, Saul, uh, what was uh, your experience going through uh, these early films? So Tarkovsky is a director who I have a large amount of respect for because he directed Solaris, which I've mentioned in a few other podcasts, is one of my all-time favorite best films of all time. So I'm very big on Solaris. So it is interesting to watch these three films that lead up to it, although my impression after watching them, and I'm sure get more into it in the discussion, is that, you know, these three films don't quite indicate, you know, what was to come from Tarkovsky with, you know, getting into Solaris and Stalker and later The Sacrifice. So, uh, look, it's always interesting to see where people who've done some of your favourite films have come from. And I guess I was approaching it from this point of view. Yvonne's childhood was a rewatch, and that proved a very fruitful rewatch. I really liked that upon rewatch. The other two films didn't really do much for me, but I respect that they were part of the progression and I guess part of the acclaim that got Tarkovsky to the point where he was able to make something like Solaris. So I appreciate how they were able to help him further his career path. Just to be clear, so when you're saying this early film that helped him progress, are you including Andrei Rublev in that? Yeah, look, um, Andrei Rublev was a first time viewing for me this week. It's a film that I put off for a while because it never looked too interesting to me and look after watching it yeah look I don't think it's a particularly amazing film I do think it's a good film I'm sure we'll discuss it a bit more later I don't think it holds a candle at all to Solaris or even Stork or The Sacrifice but I'm sure we'll get up to that later yeah, that will be a fascinating discussion because even though it's not one of my very favorite uh, well, without films, getting into <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's goes to come at you <laughs> Without getting into is it better or not, I do agree that André Rublev is still very different uh, from what came later, right? It's a lot less internal, a lot less um, mystical. I mean, there's a bit of that, but I can definitely see how one would really like his Solaris and Stalker and not really respond to André Rublev. Okay, that's that's actually really good to hear because, you know, when watching it, I was like scratching my head going, you know, is it just me? Or does this seem nothing like the films he did in the 70s or um, or The Sacrifice? And I guess it's good if it's not just me. Although it's interesting, we'll get to it a bit later. Uh, I would say that I do massively prefer Yvonne's childhood to Andrei Rublev. Uh, I'm sure we'll get onto that later on. Yeah, I'm sure that will be a very good debate because, like I mentioned, if, if I recall correctly, that is Mathieu and Tom's favorite Tarkovsky, right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. It's his best film, uh, Shadow of a Doubt. So yeah, that'll be a very fun little teaser of what's going to come later. But uh, before that, let's go back to when he was actually a fairly young-ish student and made his very first short film, granted with uh, two other uh, directors uh, as well. So he adapted the Ernest Hemingway uh, short story, The Killers, which of course has gotten some pretty big American uh, adaptations. Uh, the only one of them was before this film came out. To me, at least, a very basic film in many ways. It feels a bit... It, it's only 19 minutes long. It feels very compressed, but it's it's thoroughly well done. The composition, everything there is just spot on, but it's also a uh, very obvious student film in some way. Well, what do you guys think about it? I would agree, Chris. It, it is a basic film, as you put it. It's 
a, you know, a, a compelling adaptation of this Ernest Hemingway short about a pair of gangsters who turn up at a diner with sinister intent. And it, it is a well-made student film and it builds tension throughout, though it doesn't show any of the visual excitement that you will come to see in, in Tarkovsky's later work. It's clear that it's made by someone who's got an awareness of their craft. But you have to be fair here. This is his first outing. And for what it is, it, it certainly uh, exceeds. Yeah, I guess it's hard to really put it in with in context of his other films. It, it could be directed by anyone, aside from the fact that it's very well directed. right? I think you can see that he has an eye for composition, that he, he, yeah, he, he films it very efficiently. It's... It's a great scene in, I guess I haven't, I haven't read the Hemingway story, but it's a great scene already in the, the Robert Yodmak film. And yeah, it works well. It's funny, by the way, that one of the actors here, I think he kind of looks like Burt Lancaster, but he's playing the, the bartender. But yeah, I guess I don't have much to say about it. It's clear that it's shot by someone with talent, but it's not really indicative of much of what Tarkovsky would do afterwards. I think it's very American. It's a genre uh, film, which is not really what Tarkovsky did after, so it's a bit of a curiosity. I think you're right there, Matteo. It's it's worth noting that if you saw this film without any awareness of who created it, you'd have no way of pinning down that it's a Tarkovsky film. Yeah, and I mean, it's only one-third a Tarkovsky film as well. There's two other uh, directors involved here. And uh, while well, well, you did mention it's very American and it, it's obviously uh, inspired by noir, it's, it also has a lot of the very uh, classic Soviet aesthetics of the time or how they interpret American aesthetics. So I, I think a lot of the shots are interesting because, you know, they gave me some flashes to even childhood or even like there's obviously the bar scenes in Stalker it doesn't quite look like this at all, but it's. It's obviously the bar scenes in Stalker are quite important as they work as the early and late framing devices. But yeah, no, it, you could not really pin down that this is uh, Narkovsky. And I feel exactly the same way about the next film he did as well, which is 45 minutes. It's technically a feature. It's a TV feature. One of the directors he worked with on The Killers, Alexander Gordon, uh, or Gordon, I don't Gordon, I don't know how the Russians would uh, pronounce that. Is his co-director here as well? It was a TV movie. It's fairly compact. It's once again genre heavy. It's a bit of a suspense film with, with you know essentially the handling of explosive uh, materials. Uh, perhaps like uh, the military version of Rage's Affairs a little bit. Um, I think it actually does suspense very very well. It's a good TV effort. Uh, it, again, it doesn't really feel like... It, or rather, as opposed to the previous film, I wouldn't necessarily have guessed this was made by students. But it is, again, a fairly basic film that just applies tools very well. Again, I would agree with your assessment there, Chris. It's nothing spectacular, but it, it demonstrates competent filmmaking from young Tarkovsky and his student collaborators whilst they were honing their craft at, at film school. It is actually based upon a, a true incident and it depicts the dangers of unexploded bombs when an army unit is called upon to save save a town from certain disaster. As you mentioned, Chris, um, the use of suspenseful music enhances the tension as the soldiers carefully work at extracting the bombs. And with both this and the killers, 
seems like Tarkovsky is heading in, in a slightly direction as to, to where he ends up because they're both big on suspense and, and tension. Something that isn't necessarily used that much throughout uh, the rest of his, his career. And it's interesting to see that Tarkovsky explores the themes of heroics and noble sacrifice early on in his career because they are themes that, that we saw time and time again in his later work. So this outing, it, it pales in comparison to any of his features, but it is certainly worth a look for anyone who's curious to see how Tarkovsky paved his way to greatness. And that brings us up to the steamroller and the violin, which is approximately 46 minutes long, which again, you know, semi-qualifies as a feature. It was his last student film, uh, interestingly co-written by Andrei Konslavski, who would actually go on to co-write his next two films as well, uh, bringing all of the three major films uh, we'll be talking about uh, a little bit closer together. And, uh, of course, Andrei Poslowski is actually a very good director in his own right, even great. He made some of the best Soviet films of the 60s. He had a Hollywood career. He's still active to this day. We're making, you know, Dear Comrades uh, in 2020, which was one of the big films of, uh, well, now two years ago. Uh, so it's interesting that, uh, I mean, I, I guess if Tarkovsky hadn't died early, he might still technically be around and making great films <laughs> as well, which is just very sad to think about that we lost him so early. But right now we're talking about a Tarkovsky who is still in his 20s. Uh, at the time he made this, I believe he was 28 or 29. It's his, like we mentioned, his graduation film. It's his first solo effort as a director. And... I think it's, to be frank, I just think it is absolutely stunning. Now, I've been talking for uh, for a little while, but um, what, I, what, what I can just say is that the colors are phenomenal. This is a color film. It, it uses visuals in an incredibly poetic fashion. Once again, like you talked about the others, it really has nothing to do with what he would do later in his career. And it even has you know, a good tinge of uh, Soviet propaganda there, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit uh, later. And it's quite a cute film, a tale of hero worship between a young boy and a steamroll operator. Uh, you know, the kind of adult man-child friendship we saw in the early days of cinema. It's very innocent, it's very soft. But there's there's so much going on here with this film. I frankly love it. I think it's his first great work, though I, that might be uh, under dispute. So I'd love to hear your uh, takes on uh, his first solo effort. Yeah, I don't know if I would go as far as you, but uh, I was quite impressed by it. And it's also very much, uh, it stands out, right? Because it, it very much looks like a Soviet propaganda film in, in many ways, right? It, it has these very iconic shots of that look like uh, propaganda posters uh, at, at many times. And the, ba the basic subject of it is something that you can see how for uh, the Soviet Union, it's a great subject for a young filmmaker to tackle, right? It's all oh, the steamroller and the violin. They're both equally valuable. That's in a sense what the film is saying. It's saying you can find the greatness in both uh, this artistic expression, which is very bourgeois, and in this, uh, you know, uh, work, uh, essentially, yeah, the worker's art, in a sense. And so you can see definitely how that was a good thing for Tarkovsky to do at this point in his career, when he's just trying to 
prove that he can do the job. And at the same time, he finds great shots all over the place. It's weird because it doesn't look like a Tarkovsky film in the sense that it's very bright, very sunny, which is definitely not something associated with him. And yet, you can see his style still. He still finds some water in there, right? It's a sunny day after it's been raining. And as we get into later, Tarkovsky does love water all the time, everywhere, if he can. And yeah, I think it's, a, it's an impressive debut. For a student film, it looks, it looks extremely professional. I think it's maybe also because... There's maybe more budget in student films in the Soviet Union than there would be elsewhere. But uh, yeah, I think it's an impressive debut. I, I don't know if I would go as far as you, Chris, but uh, I quite appreciated it. I think I'm in the same boat as Matteo here. It's a nice, warm and, and colourful film, which it's certainly um, memorable. And um, the storyline is very easy to follow, which differs quite a lot from Tarkovsky's later work, where it's more complex and more in-depth. And it's an impressive technical accomplishment that it kind of bridges the gap between his early student films and his masterful feature films. As you both mentioned, there's some hypnotic shots in here involving reflections and kaleidoscopic imagery that give us an insight into Tarkovsky's appreciation for dazzling cinematography and also provide glimpses of the brilliance that is to develop later in his career. Now, I felt that the story about the friendship between the young boy and the road worker was strengthened by two solid performances there. But I did feel that their relationship often plays second fiddle to the scenery chewing, as it does feel that it's largely a vehicle for Tarkovsky to demonstrate his burgeoning talent. And I'd also say that it lacks the depth or symbolism of his, his later work. But I mean, that's kind of understandable though it does hold the film back from being anything more than a, a minor note, which is, you know, still worth seeing, still a good film, in an otherwise exceptional filmography. Yeah, I'm probably going to be the least positive on Steamroll and Violin so far. I don't think it's his first great film. I think his first great film came a year later, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, I do agree with what Tom said, that it's an easier-to-follow film than Tarkovsky's later films. Although, for me, I don't know if that's necessarily a plus. I sort of prefer something like Sacrifice or Stalker or Solace, which will challenge me a little bit more. I also understand and agree with a lot of you what you guys have been saying about different shots and cinematography. Uh, like Tom, though, I agree that it takes and makes the storyline become second fiddle. It's really a good description to the uh, camera work and the way the whole thing is shot. And... Most of my issues with the film is how it works as a narrative. I mean, on one hand, I appreciate the story because it's a type of story that could never be made today. If you made a story today about a young boy getting into a friendship with a guy four times his age, all these sinister overtones would instantly be read into. So it would be a little bit creepy if it came out today, or at least people would read into it to be creepy. So... It shouldn't have to be creepy automatically, and I like the way that it's not creepy, but uh, it is interesting. It's very much a product of its era that they are able to have a child and strange or adult friendship movie without any sinister overtones, so I like that. As a narrative, though, I didn't think there was much else to the film beyond the relationship, which, as we've already established, is already playing, you know, second fiddle to all the visuals. Uh, so the story, you know, look, um, there's a lot of subplots in there that come and go. So, you know, he starts off being bullied. So we think, oh, it's going to be about him learning to overcome the bullies. But, you know, it isn't. 
And then, you know, it's he's scoffing at other violin students. So he think, you know, it's going to be about him versus the violin students. It isn't. Then at one point he leaves his violin unattended at the back of the steamroll. And I thought like, oh, awesome. This is where it's going to get interesting. The violin's going to get broken or smashed or something. And it doesn't. So um, there wasn't really much to the film, I guess, other than the friendship. And I guess I feel there should have been more to it, especially as all these things left uh, hanging in there. And then it just ends on a really abrupt note. I mean, I guess in retrospect, the abrupt note's not too bad, I guess. It is kind of interesting a note to end on, especially with the uh, man looking up, which without spoiling it or anything, it's an interesting note to end on. But yeah, as a narrative, you know, there's people on Letterboxd who are commenting saying, you know, this is amazing for a student film, whatever. If, you know, I was Tarkovsky's teacher, I'd turn the table around and get Tarkovsky to teach me. I'm like, looking at this, if I was going to grade it, I wouldn't give Tarkovsky an S excellent. I might give him a good. It is cinematically good. But as a narrative, I think it really struggles and there's a lot of things left hanging, which if it was a longer film, I think could have maybe been fleshed out. So I hate to be the most negative on the film, but as a debut, unfortunately, it didn't really impress me. Well, I, I'm very happy that you're uh, not Tarkovsky's teacher. I'll have to say. <laughs> Since if so, he might not have been able to go on to make the films he did. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to make my third favorite film of all time. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like, it's like this is just an adequate effort. So no way you're going to get even childhood. Here's some uh, TV projects for you. Now you can do some Soviet soap opera. That would have been a very, very different and very potentially sad career. So, uh, Arthur Von, who likes it uh, the most? I guess I can talk a little bit more about why I like it, because while the Soviet propaganda is a little overbearing, I actually think Tarkovsky does a lot with the imagery here, and I don't necessarily think that there is a contradiction between the friendship and the visuals. I think that these things play very strongly together because of the narrative that uh, Tarkovsky is trying to present, which is what Mathieu mentioned earlier, this relatively obvious subtext of these two things, uh, that is, operating a steamroller and playing a violin, are equal. And while that is a little bit forced, I think there's also a lot of poetic beauty in that. And there's something that I don't think is done today. But I, I really thought, uh, again, this is standard Soviet propaganda in many ways, but the way Tarkovsky was shooting the steamroll operator and the way he was uh, shooting the workings of the steamroller itself, you actually get a bit excited. You can see these kids, you know, watching on in awe as, uh, you know, these steamrollers pave uh, the cement and you get caught up in that. You can, you can kind of feel uh, how exciting it is to see this happening and, and kind of how they really would like to do this themselves. And I think that's very masterfully done. Not to mention that there's some visual symbolism there for too. For instance, the, uh, the two steamrollers we see are colored in red and gold, which are obviously uh, the colors of the Soviet flag. So that there is an overbearing element there where it's a little bit too obvious. But I think the fact that the way he actually shoots the steamroll operator as something so honorable, so something so exciting, it, it's at least now in this day and age, very uh, refreshing. And it, it's, Exciting to me that even as it's so clearly shown to be propaganda, or it, it, as I can understand it's so clearly propaganda, it, it still works for me. I still think that that's very powerful and emotive shots that really make us see that equality between uh, this uh, steamroll operator and the v v young violinist. 
and that works really well. And then you also have this kind of very poetic, it's very short again, it's 45 minutes, and I don't think student films usually went on that longer, so it would be hard to put that much more into it. But this kind of walk around the city where uh, they start to bond and these kind of visuals of uh, progress, once again into Soviet propaganda, but there's this feeling of awe throughout. I think Tarkovsky really manages to nail that with the rain, with the light, with uh, all of the visuals going on, even some very poetic editing there that makes the film come alive it makes it it, it makes you feel it very much from this child's perspective and uh, it's not many directors that are able to do that so uh, that's one of the things that really impressed me about uh, the steamroller and the violin so i think two things i'd like to add to what you said chris is one on the propaganda um, aspect I, I think if you're going to do Soviet propaganda, this subject is a subject I can get behind with, right? It's a dignity of work that, that's completely fine by me. I think there are other s small parts of the film that bothered me a little more. Like at one point, there's a, a building being demolished and then there's this very, very triumphant shot of a um, brutalist Soviet building <laughs> replacing it, basically, I mean, in terms of the frame, which I think, yeah, that, that does not, it plays almost as comedy to me. It does not look all that great. <laughs> uh, and another thing I'd like to note is you mentioned the editing and someone then said uh, kaleidoscopic at one point. And I think there's a lot of silent cinema technique uh, early on, like especially when the kid at first uh, goes into the city, I think, and you get this kind of Giga Vertov, uh, like Symphony of a City editing with very uh, disconcerting, right? Uh, and that's something that Tarkovsky really didn't do afterwards. I think it's, it's a very stylistic note that really feels like something he just did not come back to, but it works here. I, th I thought that was pretty noteworthy. Uh, just to be clear, none of you have issues with all the subplots that come and go and never be developed. I mean, the film just kept feeling for me like it was pulling in different directions, like... It might be about the bullies. It might be about violin lessons and not liking the other students. It might be about wanting to be a steamroller rather than be a violinist. It might be about this violin being in danger of being smashed. And yet it ended up being about none of that. So I guess to me, I found that disappointing. And look, I agree there's a lot of symbolism. And as a color film from the early 60s, it is very striking and well done. But I guess just to me as a narrative, I was just expecting a lot more. Well, to me, they didn't really feel like subplots. They just felt like side plots that were kind of there throughout. I mean, the violinist is kind of an outsider with his friend group or with his peers, perhaps because he is a young violinist and they don't see him as someone who'd, who they would play with. So I think that that actually plays through the entire film. You see it from the very first scene. You know, they bully him, they, they then start to envy him a little bit when uh, he rides the steamroller, uh, there is some bullying scenes, and he learns to stand up for himself. So I think that's actually a fairly consistent thread that's uh, pulled through the film, and I think it also ties into a little bit with the ending, where there is this discrepancy that's also shown, which is interesting, that maybe the violinist and the steamroller operator can't actually be a match, which is a very interesting thing to do in a, in a propaganda film, if you want to call it that, of this kind. So I, I don't think that's a series of subplots. I just think that's part of the overall plotline. Yeah, look, I, yeah, I agree. The ending is really interesting, and especially what it says about that boy-man relationship. And I guess that's probably one of the reasons why the film isn't read in such sinister terms as it might otherwise be by a contemporary audience. And I guess maybe if I did revisit the film at some point with knowing what to come, 
maybe everything would be a bit more, more cohesive to me. But I guess when I was watching the film, it just <laughs> it really felt to me, yeah, like a student film rather than, you know, the debut of somebody that's going to make my third favourite film. But that's all right. You know, we can't all like our, our favourite director's first films. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. And I think it, it does still have uh, the aura of a student film in many ways. Like it is him actually uh, playing with the medium a little bit, seeing what he can do, pulling out the things he's learned, like the silent techniques, etc. So I don't think that's a bad read, but I do think it's probably one of the best student films that I've seen. And uh, it stands out as a student film. But as we promised, do a quick dissection of the ending. Uh, let's throw up a very quick spoiler warning. For those of you who have not seen this film yet, you can uh, jump ahead. Spoiler warning. So I, I thought it was really interesting how it ends on a fairly sad note. So they made this date of sorts to meet for a cinema and kind of continue their friendship but uh, the boy is rather understandably held up whole by his mother who actually does think it's rather odd that this kid is hanging out with a much older man and uh, he tries to contact uh, the steamroller operator he tries to follow on his sheet music with a note and send it out as a paper plane but it uh, it, it doesn't uh, reach the steamroller operator the steamroller operator just waits and waits he looks around it, it's quite a sad moment and this this relationship is kind of left unresolved. But in the process of that, he runs into his fellow steamroller operator, a woman who he might have a semi-flirty relationship with or never actually connected with on that level. And they end up going to the cinema instead, which is a bit of a bittersweet, happy ending in a way that they might find love. And then, of course, in the final imagery, you have this metaphorical element with the steamroller driving out towards the sea you have rain you have sun it's a beautiful shot and uh, the boy is running after the steamroller it's fairly poetic it, it might, might symbolize that th- there is this discrepancy between the fine arch and and work and that there's something that can't be uh, connected there or it's something else to leave us thinking about but it's mixed messaging in a way it is like Saul said, a little bit abrupt too. You wouldn't have expected it necessarily to end that way. So I'd love to hear some thoughts on on the ending. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a subversive note in a sense of saying that all oh, this kind of idyllic world of uh, the classes being completely in harmony and in agreement, it's not exactly reality, right? The mother doesn't want her son to be learning how to drive a steamroller. That's not what she wants for her son. She wants him to learn the violin. So it's not this idyllic, right? And maybe you can interpret, again, the very sunny day. Uh, You have rain uh, interrupting at some points, which I think maybe there's a way in which Tarkovsky is saying, well, I'm doing something that is uh, the, the ideal world that the Soviet Union wants to present, but maybe it's a bit more complex than that. I think I think it's definitely an interesting touch and a beautiful ending. I would agree. It's it's a nice ending and it fits well with the story that precedes it. And I'd also add that if uh, we weren't aware that this is a student film, I didn't think we'd ever consider it as being a student film. So I just thought I'd throw that one out there. Maybe that will rifle Sol some more. <laughs> Look, um, I don't know in terms of being a student film or not, whether I'd be able to tell. Uh, it does, I guess, seem to me a early work just because I do have quite a few issues with how it works as a narrative. 
in terms of the uh, ending, um, yeah, I guess the most striking part of it for me is not the boy so desperate to leave and get out and send that paper aeroplane through the window and, you know, then going off and having this dream sequence where he is still chasing off the steamroller. I guess what stands out to me most is, as I mentioned or alluded to earlier on, the man staring up and looking up in, like, total dismay that a little kid isn't coming out to join him. And I guess something I forgot to mention is that when he's actually getting the boy to drive the steamroller, he's actually got the boy sitting on his lap. And I'm thinking, you know, how different a film would this be if this boy who is taken out, who's got to sit in his lap, actually came out of the end, ran up to him because they actually got reunited to see the movie and gave him a big hug and he went into a darkened theatre to watch a film with him. I mean, I know it's hard to not read the film with 21st century eyes, but, you know, uh, it would add a little bit of creepiness to it. And I guess that ending there with the man looking up it doesn't really quite resolve to me how the man feels about the boy, which is something which I said there about the runtime being quite brief or whatever. I mean, if it was a bit longer or whatever, a bit more character background, we found, well, maybe he lost a son and therefore this is a surrogate son for him or something like that would make it um, maybe a bit more wholesome. Knowing nothing about the steamroller's background, we have no idea what his intentions is. All we know at the end there is that he's really longing to be with this boy, but he has to settle for the woman instead, which I guess is kind of interesting if you're reading into social conventions or whatever, and he has to go out the, with a girl his age rather than go with um, the boy. But anyway, look, I shouldn't be reading into it this way, but, you know, it's just very hard not to with 21st century eyes. Well, that's a very somber note to, to end that on, but... I suppose we can take this opportunity to uh, continue to, to the story of another boy with uh, close relationships uh, to adults, this time in uh, a much uh, darker uh, scenario, though. So I'm, talk I'm talking, of course, of Ivan's uh, childhood, which, to, to speak a little bit more seriously about it, is a riveting story of uh, childhood in wartime, where we're full of this young orphan who has joined the war effort with great pains to his own body, which is comp almost completely destroyed, and his psyche, which is also on the hinges of uh, keeping everything together. It's not a visually evocative film with striking dream sequences, but also a very strong narrative. Um, this is probably the last Tarkovsky film with very strong Soviet elements. You have, you know, uh, the hooray for the Soviet war efforts, uh, the bravery of all Soviet citizens, including a young child. It, it is, in some ways, his real full-length debut with the steamroller violin only being 46 minutes. This was the film he broke through it, and it makes sense that it would be a more great narrative. He injects so much power there, but at least to me, it's not quite that Tarkovsky would uh, come to know, even though I definitely agree with Saul, this is uh, just a thoroughly great film. Yeah, Ivan's childhood is, as you said, it's interesting. It's again, uh, Tarkovsky working within the Soviet system. I think there's nothing less... Um, uh, acceptable for for a young Soviet director than to make a film about World War II, right? The Great Patriotic War, as they call it. 
So in that sense, it's very much uh, conventional. But obviously, Tarkovsky does have an approach that makes this subject matter interesting, right? This basic idea of loss of innocence. Obviously, Ivan himself, but also the female soldier, right, also kind of represents that. And even just generally, the soldiers, you, there's, there's this idea that they're very young, they're very inexperienced, like the, the officer that first meets him. It's really the, this theme that clearly runs through the film in a way that I find almost too simple compared to later Tarkovsky films. But nonetheless, it's, it's quite well executed. And Tarkovsky definitely finds a lot of great shots in this, like this shot where the female soldier is held by this aggressor, essentially, uh, above, above this, den- this ditch. That's a great shot. Generally, you, you see him developing his style. It looks a lot more like his later films would than the Simroller and the Violin. And I think especially it's the start of his love affair with swamps and bogs, <laughs> which is something that is in all of his films and really a lot in, in this one. Ivan's Childhood is a film I like. It's obviously a good film, but to me it is the lesser of the, the Tarkovsky like, full features and even, even counting the Simroller and the Violin. I think Ivan's Childhood is a really striking film and it showcases a lot of the talent and dazzling cinematography that Tarkovsky would display in his later films. Though it does lack for me the emotional resonance that I would see in in most of his, his latter films. I mean, it's fascinating to see the tragedy of war through the eyes of a a young boy and as Chris mentioned it's bookmarked by fantastical dreamlike sequences which are also scattered throughout the central narrative and here the war has taken Ivan's parents and he's fallen in with a group of soldiers who reluctantly allow him to engage in undercover operations due to his ability to creep around unnoticed and Tarkovsky's arresting cinematography finds beauty in the harsh environment of the no man's land between German and Soviet forces. This bog-like area, the swamp that Matteo mentioned, and he uses gliding camera work, which is as precise as the considered actions of the protagonist, who, like Tarkovsky, displays a, a maturity beyond his years. Okay, so in the chat, we've just had a little bit of a discussion about whether it should be Ivan or Ivan. And I guess, you know, mentally I always call it Ivan's childhood, but I know with Russian probably should be Ivan's childhood. Anyway, yeah, yeah, Ivan's childhood, Ivan's childhood, however you want to call it. I I do, as I mentioned before, think it's the best of the three films that Tarkovsky made during the 1960s, although it wasn't really into my recent rewatch of it that really, you know, confirmed to me this is really, you know, a great film. Um, I can't want to have it down as my fourth favourite Tarkovsky film, so... I do have to disagree with Mature that I don't think it's one of his lesser films. I think, you know, it's sort of like in the top half of uh, what he put out. Though, of course, he didn't make that many films. Just to get uh, back to what some of my co-hosts have said, uh, look, I do agree with, like, Mature that there are a lot of great shots in there. Uh, One of them, which I do want to mention, is one where they're looking down a well and it's sort of like looking back up at them. I thought it was just amazing some of the compositions in there. Tom did talk about emotional resonance, maybe a bit of a lack of it. I guess I find this one maybe a bit more emotional because it's actually a bit more in Ivan or Ivan's mental space. I mean, so much of the film is dreams and nightmares. I didn't even remember that because I first saw it around four years ago. 
And the thing, the things that struck me the most was interactions with the soldiers. But upon rewatching it, there was actually a lot of dream and a lot of nightmare sequences in there, and they're just amazingly done. I mean, the first one is absolutely beautiful. He's imagining himself flying through the air, and then he's got a great one at the end, which I'm not going to mention for spoilers um, yet. But also, um, there's just a lot of yeah nightmare parts in there also, as he's remembering his pre-war times, and it's something like flashes, and he's actually in reality. And I just love the choice of title because it's actually not Yvonne's childhood. The film is actually Yvonne's lack of childhood. And, you know, that's sort of like what Tarkovsky is showing. You know, you've got this kid or whatever who is still a kid in his head. He's dreaming about things like flying, like, you know, kids would do. But, you know, at the same time, he's stuck in this war situation where he's sort of like caught um, running errands just as a way of like surviving or getting by. So... Yeah, I just absolutely uh, really admired the film. I really liked the Tony, but I liked how dreamy it was because that's my favorite type of Tarkovsky, and we'll probably get into that more when we get to um, Andrei Rublev later on. But my favorite sort of Tarkovsky is that sort of dreamy, meditative Tarkovsky, which is what Solaris is like and what Sacrifice and Stalker are like also to a degree. And this one, for me, is just such a dreamy film. It's so different to me from... Steam roll and violin, which is a very conventional narrative. And I just love how unconventional and just how absolutely gorgeous it looks in, you know, stark black and white. Yeah, I'm just going to agree with two of the things you said. So the first one is very obvious. This is a visually stunning film. I mean, to me, the steam roll and violin was beautiful as well, but this is like the craftsmanship that went into this film is spectacular. The camera angles, the immersion you have, the way uh, the camera even moves and feels alive, especially in those dreams you mentioned, and how varied it is visually. You have this bleak and stark real world, which is shot with very stark contrast. It's a lot of darkness. It, it feels a lot like a noir even, or maybe going back to his early uh, short work with the killers. You have that kind of really tight visual suspense. But then you have these dreams which are innocent or they often end on really tragic notes. And they, they just bring in so much more light. They feel more eerie. You can feel his the, the degree of play going in there. And the, the contrast is wonderful. The way Tarkovsky handled both styles. It's wonderful, and I, I think you hit something very important there, that it keeps reminding you of Ivan's missing childhood, because these dreams really makes you feel what he could have had, and what was taken from him, and it makes the film much stronger than it otherwise would have been. I do think the way Tarkovsky incorporates these dream sequences or fantasy sequences is very interesting, right? There, there's basically no delineation uh, between reality and dreams. As you said, they're shot differently, right? But there's not an obvious point where you go from one to the other. The transition, I think, is quite interesting because Tarkovsky is clearly someone who is fascinated with the, the world of the mind, I guess, as we see in his later films. And there's something of that already here in how he explores uh, essentially the internal psyche of Ivan, who wants to be, who, who he longs for that, right? He longs for that childhood he didn't have. And I think that's perhaps the most unique part of the film compared to other similar films of the era. I do think it's very well shot. I, I certainly agree with that. But aren't most Soviet films of this era? I mean, maybe I haven't seen enough, but it, it did not seem 
that exceptional to me, except uh, I think Tarkovsky has a great visual sense, right? Uh, but I, I agree, Ivan's childhood looks great. I guess it did not strike me that much compared to other similar films. I mean, the visuals here are definitely the strongest aspect of the film. There's staggering shots of reflections in mirrors and ripples through water or natural light flickering through trees. And they breathe life into this cold and harrowing tale as Tarkovsky paints a picture of pure poetry amongst the ruin and desolation of a scarred landscape. I think it's also easy to overlook the incredible performances as it is the striking imagery that tends to haunt you the most whilst you're watching this film. Though I think it's notable that uh, Nikolai Berlyayev, who would work with Tarkovsky on his next film, Andrei Rublev, in a stunning sequence involving a bell that has surprising parallels with their first collaboration. I think that's maybe something we'll get into as we discuss Andrei Rublev. But it's definitely a, a strong and assured debut feature that it doesn't demand as much from the viewer as most of Tarkovsky's later work. Though it is still rife with the symbolism that would come to define the auteur's philosophical approach to filmmaking, and it's certainly deserving of its status as one of the classic Soviet war films of its era, even though I think that it's not necessarily one of Tarkovsky's greatest films, but I do still think that it's a very well-made film. Yeah, look, I just thought I'd jump on a couple of things which Mature said. Uh, number one, I do think it is well shot compared to other Soviet films of the era. I know there are quite a few, you know, classic Russian uh, films or Soviet films from the 1960s, but I've also seen a lot of, you know, well, I don't know, uh, Adam um, from um, the UK or whatever, um, he he would regard them as terrible. I mean, there's a lot of like Russian comedies that I've seen from the 1960s, and you know uh, they they don't look anywhere near um, you know as stunning as Ivan's childhood does. So no, I think it is certainly one of the more unique looking films. Uh, I do really like the point though that Mature made about that there's no obvious distinction between dreams and reality in Ivan's childhood. And I think that's one of its yeah best features because it reminds me so much then of Solaris, where the characters are stuck between not knowing what's real and not knowing what is and isn't real. And I sort of get that same sort of feeling with Ivan's childhood. So it really reminds me of what I really like the most about Tarkovsky as a director at his peak. I will say that the standard of filmmaking in the Soviet Union in the 1960s was incredibly high on dramatic efforts, especially on war films. I mean, we need to remember that you had films like The Cranes for Flying, Ballad of a Soldier, so many absolutely spectacularly shot films from this time. But these are also generally regarded to be masterpieces. Or close. I wouldn't use that as a negative for Tarkovsky. I, I, I mean, for instance, uh, Mikhail uh, Kalotosov, who did The Cranes uh, Are uh, Flying, I mean, he, he's considered one of the most important directors of all time on the back of like four films. So uh, again, th th I don't think that's an argument that should belittle Ivan Childhood, even though I, I can agree that if we look at the rest of Tarkovsky's work uh, and we look at Ivan Childhood, it is clearly the most conventional, if, if you can use that uh, term for it. Even, even more so than Steamroller and the Violin, it is more narrative-driven. The characters are alive. You're focused into their drama. Their suspense, in a lot of ways, comes from the direct 
threat of war and uh, how these characters respond to it. Uh, there's a lot of direct dialogue specifically about the plot rather than tying into larger philosophical themes. So in that way, it is more of a straight film. But I mean, it, it, that doesn't really, that's not a negative. It, it is a spectacular war film. It's just not quite what Tarkovsky would do later. Okay, I think, I think I need to clarify a bit. I think I did not maybe express myself the best way. Um, it's not that I don't think Ivan's childhood looks great. I think it does. It's a film I like. Uh, I think, I think it's successful and all that. I think it's just, I'm trying to understand why I didn't quite have the same reaction to it that, uh, for example, Saul did. And I think maybe it's because it's, as you said, Chris, it's a little more conventional. And even if it is quite accomplished visually, I find that it does not offer me something uniquely visually stunning in the sense, in the way that basically every Tarkovsky film after that does. So I appreciate it as a very well done film. And I also think it's the fact that it has this relative simplicity in what it's saying, uh, which is not a, a problem. But I think that's why to me, when I compare it to other works by Tarkovsky, it feels a little lesser, even though it is a good film. I, I, I definitely appreciate it. And yes, I, I agree that the fact that there are other very good looking films of this time does not diminish it. I agree with that. One thing that I'd like to pick up on is the stark contrast between life and death that is portrayed in Ivan's childhood. There's a scene that really stuck with me, which Matteo mentioned earlier, which is when the young girl Masha and the soldier in the forest have an encounter and there's this beautiful scene where the soldier holds Masha over a ditch and the camera work is, is excellent. Lots of inventive camera work throughout the film. And then afterwards, Masha climbs up a fallen tree as the camera glides alongside it. And that's a repeated motive throughout the film. You know, at the start, we have Ivan floating through the sky with this gliding camera. And I think that's a beautiful touch by Tarkovsky. But getting back to what I said about the stark contrast between life and death is that the subsequent scene, we see Masha, who's kind of fallen head over heels with almost an all-consuming love that makes her dizzy in the, in the trees after this encounter. And then there's just a harsh cut to two corpses tied against a tree with a sign saying, welcome. That's obviously, you know, a warning to the other soldiers. And it's really harsh view of life that Tarkovsky shows there, but I think it's an incredibly well done scene. And, and for me, those two scenes, the juxtaposition between the two was uh, one of my favourite moments within the film. I actually had some uh, problems with uh, those scenes, especially on rewatch. So, so I, the first time I saw it, which was like uh, over a decade ago, these scenes were obviously absolutely stunning, uh, and they are uh, still to this day. But I'm not sure if, first of all, I'm not sure if focusing uh, like a 15 minute after the film suddenly on the adult characters and this love triangle, if you will, between uh, the, the young officer, Ivan's essential handler, uh, Colin, and this girl, Masha, is that important to the plot or that interesting for the plot? I'm not really sure why it is necessarily there. I think it takes away tension from Ivan. I mean, I suppose it builds up 
uh, these other characters a little bit, or maybe it's just so, the Soviet wanting to have a love story or some kind of uh, or a woman character in there to make the film more bankable uh, to, with audiences in some way. But it just to me feels like a diversion. It feels a little bit totally different because you have this kind of very childish uh, behavior from the young officer where he's clearly really, really jealous. This can tie with what you mentioned earlier, that just pointing out how young these some of these people are. But it also felt like it wasn't as serious or as involving as the more devastating portions of the film. And while at the same time, it didn't really elevate it either. And with an addition to that, with 21st century eyes, that romancing scene, if you will, also comes off as pretty extreme sexual harassment, where it's essentially uh, threatening her, uh, pulling rank, holding her against her will over, you know, a steep gap. It, it, it's a bit uncomfortable to watch. But at the end of that, he just sends her away. He doesn't do anything that... Uh, he doesn't assault her. But... It's it's a very creepy and unnerving scene, and when she runs away, you can see that she's actually falling in love a little bit or getting interested, but up until that point, it's a very odd scene. Well, I actually disagree here, Chris, uh, because to me, it clearly is supposed to be harassment. I'm too, it's never supposed to be a romance scene for me, and I think it's quite relevant to what the film is doing because it's the loss of innocence, right? And there's this contrast between Masha, who is very, again, innocent, and Ivan, who has already lost it all because he's been here, right? And generally, the officers are more innocent than he is. I think that is the contrast that Tarkovsky is drawing. And besides, I think that film, that scene in the forest is perhaps the most visually striking to me in the whole film. I mean, there's the stuff later on with the, the mission in, in the swamp. That, that's also great. I agree that it stands out, but I think it stands out in a way that actually makes the film more interesting uh, to me. Uh, and there's even this, this whole song, which is about Masha right later on. It, it's not about her, but I guess Masha is the name in the song, which is probably not a coincidence, and is again ab about losing one's innocence. To me, it definitely fits in the film, because it's thematically hammering the same point home. Oh, and, and also, I'd, I'd add that it's... Uh, a big subject, actually, uh, women in the Soviet army in the in World War Two, right? Because no other army had women as integrated, and there was a whole. It's it's a whole thing because the reality of it was that there was a lot of harassment, a lot, a lot of rape. I mean, it's a big subject that I don't know how aware Tarkovsky was of it. I don't know exactly what the consciousness of it was at the time in the Soviet Union, but maybe he's also kind of obliquely tackling uh, that subject. Well, if he is, I think he's undercutting it a little bit by that scene ending with her uh, not necessarily wanting to leave. So I'm still not sure exactly how I feel about that scene. Yeah, I guess I, I, guess I didn't interpret it that way, but um, I, I did not interpret it as her being in love at all. That's not what I got from it, but it's up for uh, debate. Okay, I can't really bring anything more to the debate about um, the Marsha subplot and whether or not, you know, it's harassment or falling in love because that's really the part of the film where I began to tune out. And I noticed that the first time, I noticed that the second time when I watched the film, you know, that's my least favourite part of Ivan or Yvonne's childhood just because the rest of the film is so much set in his mental headspace where he is flipping in and out seamlessly between dreams and nightmares. You've sort of got that blurred reality. And then the film goes on this entirely different deflection, following another character around. Um, 
yeah, look, it's the one thing which, you know, makes the film a great film for me rather than an excellent film. If it was all about Yvonne and his experiences, it would probably rate on the same sort of, you know, wouldn't be quite Solaris, would probably rank on the same sort of level as Stalker and Sacrifice for me. But that's probably the one thing that keeps it a little bit lower for me in my esteem. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I like Stalker far more than you, but uh, it, it would certainly have moved it up from a great film to a favorite if it delved further into Ivan's uh, headspace and uh, left this diversion on the side. But I, I take Mathieu's point that it does add things that play with the same kind of subtext uh, and thematic elements. So uh, I, I can see where Tarkovsky was coming from there. And, and actually, the point that it's kind of like this dual focus on Masha's innocence versus Ivan's innocence is interesting and i think it can work though obviously masha is an adult woman in the army so i wouldn't necessarily say they're entirely comparable but like uh, we talked about too that it just shows how the soldiers in some way especially this young uh, officer maybe even less developed or as, as even less mature than ivan uh, is something that's interesting to look at too so very good points Matthew. and with that debate out of the way let's uh take a closer look at the ending here because there's a lot of things that are going on and as you mentioned there's this mission to cross the river the adults and Ivan go over and then we just leave Ivan he's gone he disappears uh, we're left with the adults and their very perilous path of trying to get back to the other side uh, with a lot of threat a lot of hiding, a lot of shooting, a lot of suspense, and Ivan is technically not seen again. We get these scenes with the adults, and then we cut until after the war, where in Germany, in, as they go through a prison, the young officer now clearly matured, or at least broke a bit more broken by the war, complete with the scar, discovers that Ivan was captured and executed. It, it, it's uh, a very dark scene, there's a lot of visual imagery there, but from that point, we actually cut to Ivan playing games on the beach with his friends. It, it's this very simple game, it's on the beach, he's running into the water, actually almost it, thematically and visually, it, it's very similar to the steamroller and the violin's final shot, which is very interesting, For he then runs towards this tree to just kind of end the game. And that's where the film ends. And I think you have this play, uh, but I also think that when he runs to that tree, that is the meeting point as well, because they mentioned earlier in the film that, they all, that they're going to meet at a tree. And in his this vision after he's dead, and he has his childhood, he runs and he makes it to the tree, which I guess uh, is meant to be very evocative, and it is. It, it's very interesting scene because it's so fantastical. It's so peaceful. I guess it's in many ways just shows the childhood that he could have had if this had not happened. I think it's very strong. It, it, it hits quite well. Uh, how, how did it affect you? I thought it was a powerful ending. And it's interesting, Tarkovsky's choice to not necessarily show the atrocities towards the end. They're all hinted at through the uh, flashbacks. And, you know, there's the suggestion of these really harrowing experiences within the prison. But we don't get to see them in depth. And I think that the final flashback, which, as you mentioned, Chris, it just demonstrates the childhood that Ivan should have had, 
it's fascinating to see there's lots of unusual monochromatic lighting and i think it's a it's a powerful piece of cinema and it's uh, really brings an end to the film in in a way that stays with you and, and haunts you okay this is getting very interesting because i only rewatched the film about five days ago but for whatever reason uh parts of the ending escaped me the most memorable part for me is the part where he's running along and you know chasing a girl who's about his age and that just seems you know an amazing note to end on you know going back to the whole idea of the film being about his lack of childhood and his dreams and his nightmares are the only parts where he can really be like a child and you know it initially seems like this childhood game of chase he was going to go chase after the girl which the girl about his own age or whatever so maybe there's even something you know pre-romantic about it but it actually goes past it actually ends up running past the girl and into the ocean and maybe it's me misinterpreting it maybe the game was who gets to the ocean first but the way the whole scene is cut together it's cut as him chasing her so she's running then he is running she's running he is running so it's cut as him chasing after her and it's sort of like, well, we think, you know, that he's got, you know, sort of like normal childhood there where or normal childhood ideas about wanting to run and play with girls. But actually, no, it's not. And that's sort of the thing where he goes to the ocean for you, sort of like that. Well, but we go, no, you know, he's not a normal child or whatever. Not after all these wartime experiences. He's not going to be able to go out again and just play with girls his own age. That's a, that's a good take, so I, I quite like that. Uh, I think it's actually noteworthy that, unless I'm mistaken, and may, I guess aside from the sacrifice, we never see the ocean in Tarkovsky's films. Uh, I could be wrong, but for, for as much as he loves water, he doesn't shoot the ocean that much. The ocean is o- often used to represent you know, death or eternity, and so I think your interpretation sort of makes sense, right? He's running towards death, uh, essentially. Yeah, I think, think that's uh, that's a very good read. And obviously it's the same girl. I, I, at least I believe it's the same girl he's chasing after that was on the apple cart with him. So, so this is clearly someone that he knew in real life and had some connection to. So whether or not it's a flashback or whether or not it is another vision of some sort, I didn't actually consider it could be a flashback. I thought it was more symbolism of what he'll now never have. But it could actually be a, a flashback as well. And I think it's... Very beautiful the way uh, when he runs after his girl, he overtakes her and he just continues into the ocean without her. And he could have ended there and just, he just disappears into the o- ocean instead. But then he runs back and he touches the tree, you know, completing the, the game in a way. And uh, I suppose it also ties into how he just you know, didn't complete his final uh, mission. And it's interesting that you can, when you can play an ending that's in some ways, Untaken on its own is very happy and free, but obviously in the context of the fact all of the the torture instrument we saw in the previous scene, the fact that, you know, we, we know he has been killed by the Nazis, and we know that his entire childhood was destroyed. I, I think it, it, it's just so harrowing, and I think it's a very good choice by Tarkovsky to end it on that note. And I think it's also interesting that this is obviously his last child protagonist. And I think we can move on to Andrei, Rublev from here because we're going to have a lot to discuss about Andrei Rublev. But these two films, or even these first four films, if you want to include his short in his TV movie, um, they are not necessarily 
what we would come to know Tarkovsky for. I mean, as we discussed earlier, these are really Tarkovsky working within the Soviet system, uh, showing what they can do with Ivan's childhood being the proper big breakthrough where he showed everyone that he was a master at his craft. And as soon as that happens, you know, he leaves these child protagonists behind. I don't think he's overly interested in childhood because children never really, uh, aside from flashbacks or memories or, or visions uh, or, or the small bit characters, children never really play a big role in Tarkovsky's uh, later films in, in the way that they do here. And he would also move further and further away from more traditional plots. And I think most people agree that Andrei Rublev is... Well, it, it's just known. It's his first true passion project. This is a film he really thought to have made. It is a three-hour-long epic showing the life and times of Andrei Rublev, uh, a 13th and 14th century Russian monk and iconographer. Uh, he's now venerated as a saint, but he, that had not yet happened at this point in time. And Tarkovsky really just went all out with his symbolism here. He no longer le leaned into Soviet propaganda. This is him far more... Uh, and this is what he, one of the things he himself said about it, which is that he wanted to contemplate Christianity and Rus Russia, its joint history, even said that you know, this was a way of looking at Christianity as an axiom uh, of Russia, in a way, just show how intertwined their histories are. But uh, at least to me, that history is not really shown in an overly nice way. There's a lot of darkness there. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a series of long segments, many of them end in fairly harrowing way, as we see Rubel both as a man, as an artist, uh, and as someone perhaps a little bit more transcendental towards the end. There's something more than a character in some ways. It's a visually spectacular film. Uh, and it's a film Tarkovsky clearly poured so much of his heart and soul into. Uh, but it's also a film where we have a complete clash. So we have uh, Mathieu and Tom holding it uh, up as their favorite Tarkovsky. We have Saul, who is just not that impressed. And then you have me, who's actually somewhere in between. Uh, I think it's a great film, but I don't actually think it's one of Tarkovsky's true standout films. So I suppose we can pick up this debate where we left off, and we can start with you, Tom, then go to Mathieu, and ha just have you guys tell us why this is your all-time favorite Tarkovsky film. Andrei Rublev is, without a doubt, Tarkovsky's masterpiece. Now, although it's three hours long, it's not an intimidating film because it's broken up into distinct chapters which tell the incredible story of Rublev through various parts of his life. I think it's interesting to note that when I re-watch a film for the podcast, I usually take notes to help me out uh, when we're doing these recording sessions. Now, in Evans' childhood, I wrote a couple of pages of notes. Andre Rublev, I didn't write any notes because although I'd seen the film before, I was just that engrossed in what was going on. I didn't touch my pen and paper. I was just happy to get lost in this chaotic poetry that Tarkovsky pre presents to us. 
It's a really savage and bleak depiction of 15th century Russia. The violence is all too real and visceral. It's framed with within uh, Tarkovsky's beautiful eye for exquisite cinematography. And he captures the savagery in a way that leaves you shaken to the core, particularly in scenes where a troop of stone carvers are blinded and then there's an unsettling torture sequence in which molten metal is poured into a man's throat. And these are harrowing, disturbing scenes that really stay with you. I won't go into the overarching themes of the film, but they're also excellent. I'll uh, let Matteo explain why he loves it as well, and then we'll get into that a bit further on. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the notes, Tom, because I usually don't take notes, but I, I did preparing for this podcast. And contrary to you, I took like two pages of notes on André Rublev and much less for the other ones. <laughs> I guess it's, it's a film that is so rich. Uh, there is a lot to say about it, but I think to me, the reason why it stands out so much, why it's my, my favorite Tarkovsky and one of my favorite films of all time is... You said it, it's divided into various parts, Tom, and I think it's like 11 parts in total if you count prologue and epilogue. To me, it's really two parts, right? There's the, the parts that are focused on André Rublev, and there's the church bell uh, sequence, which is, might generally be my favorite 45 or 50 minutes of cinema ever. With, with that sequence, he really is reaching something transcendental. For me, something that is touching at the core of of what Tarkovsky wants to do in all of his films, which is to really elevate the human spirit, right? To kind of, well, elevate, maybe not the right word, but uh, to find, yeah, to find the transcendental in the human experience. And I think with that moment, with that feat of making that bell, he finds it. And it's also a great metaphor for making a film, which I did not clock the first time I watched it. But uh, rewatching it now, it seems so obvious, right? It, it is this huge endeavor where you don't really know what you're doing at first. and it involves so many people and so many steps. And right until the end, you're not quite sure if it will work, right? That this whole thing about the, you finish the, the clock, but it has to ring, right? You, you, you can't know if it works before you hear it ring. And that's kind of like before you've projected the film, right? You, or maybe before you've done the editing. I don't know. It's, it's, it's so rich. And it's, the whole film is really embodying Tarkovsky's ethos, which is this idea of talent, this idea of, I guess, what you're born to do. Of To him, Tarkovsky clearly is a very spiritual, even religious man. And for him, honoring God is to fulfill what you're put on earth to do, right, in a sense. And that's what you see. You, you see what the difficulty of that is in that film and how it is the ultimate reward, right? And I think that's a very powerful idea. Whether or not you are religious, whether or not you believe you know, in anything metaphysical, I think it's an extremely powerful idea. And the way Tarkovsky puts it on screen, especially in that bell sequence, but the whole film is, is magnificent. To me, it's one of the most powerful moments uh, yeah, ever. And then there's that ending, which is clearly for Tarkovsky, the absolute um, culmination of the film. A little less so for me, but it still works. And it's, it has that mystery of Tarkovsky because of the way it ends, right? At first you get these icons of André Rublev and clearly it's supposed to be, wow, this was his life's work. It's presented very triumphantly. And then he, it, the music fades out and it starts to be this sounds of nature and you get this final image, which I still can't explain. I'm, I would be very interested to know if you guys have ideas. This image of these horses just eating grass, I guess. Um, so to me, it's both a very well-mastered film, right, where, uh, where Tarkovsky has this, his ideas and he's expressing them to me in, in a very clear manner. But it also has 
that mystery that his later films have a lot of, with that scene and with a few other ones. So yeah, that's why for me it's his best film. And uh, now to hear a little bit uh, from the opposition. Uh, Saul, why is this one of the Lester Tarkovskis for you? Yeah, I just realized I'm not going to make any friends with this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, uh, what can you do? Uh, look, all, all I can do is give my honest impression of what the film was like. And it might be one of those films where maybe if I had seen it 20 years ago when I first got into cinema, it might have made more of an impression with me. If I hadn't watched Solaris seven times before sitting down to watch this, maybe I wouldn't have that to mentally compare it to. But look, I thought I'd first start off by sharing an email exchange I had with a friend after he saw my letterbox stream that I'd finally watched Andrei Rublev. And he's written, I yet to see it myself, not only because it looks so boring, but because of the animal cruelty, which, you know, I can't stomach. And my reply to that, not about the animal cruelty, because I'm sure we'll get into that later. So my reply to him was, yes, Andre is fairly boring, but cinematically more so than an, as a narrative. Ooh. I'm sorry, I know it's controversial, but how somebody goes from something as dreamy as Ivan, where half the film is spent in his dreams and nightmares, to something as relatively straightforward as Andre, and then back to something as dreamy as Solaris, oh well. So that's what I wrote in the email, and I guess if I just want to expand that a little bit, I guess uh, even though it is broken up into eight chapters, I guess I find the basic narrative of Andrei Rublev to be fairly conventional. I mean, I know it's not quite a biopic as such because it deviates a bit from the facts, and I know people describe it as more of an epic than a biopic, but, you know, it is basically a live story film especially when you compare it to something like Ivan's childhood, which gets so lost in his dreams and nightmares that we don't even know what to make of that final sequence uh, where he's running. And you get something like Solaris, where the characters can't even trust what's going through their minds. And then you've got this rather, even if it does look quite stunning at times, it's just, as a narrative, it just doesn't really do anything to elevate the medium for me. I mean, like, Solaris is just... Such a crazy out there narrative. Uh, Ivan's childhood, again, the same thing over there, stuck between dreams and nightmares. And then you get this more conventional film, at least for me, it's a bit more conventional in between. But, you know, not to harp on too much about the negatives, I do agree with Tom about the visceral violence. That's obviously one of the most striking elements of the film. I'm not going to go into the animal cruelty because we'll get to that later on, I'm sure. But, yeah, just some of the violent stuff in there and some of the pagan rituals. And, you know, they've got the crucifixion reenactment that's all shown in grisly detail. And that was, like, really awesome. That was probably the part of the film where I was most engaged. And I guess his subsequent, you know, deciding to take a vow of silence, that was quite engaging for me. The first 90 minutes of the film, though, were a much more uneven ride for me. I couldn't really work out exactly where I was going on, and I wasn't very captivated. I was at first because it opens with this amazing hot air balloon rise, which is so voyeuristically shot as the hot balloon goes up in the air. And I thought, this is breathtaking. And then it becomes, you know, just more standard following um, Andre along until he gets to the point there where he actually makes that vow of silence. I do agree with Mature that the bell sequence is striking. And I think the metaphor that he's come up with 
comparing it to making a film. I never even thought about it. That's brilliant. I think, yeah, that does really work as a metaphor there. And it is a really interesting sequence. It's probably also the sequence that has the best photography beyond the hot air balloon sequence. So you've actually got these great crane shots where the camera is going up in the air and pulling away from distance. And that's the closest the film comes to mimicking the um, shots in Ivan's childhood, which I liked so much. But I guess maybe the clincher for me is I'm not a religious person and I guess viewing it as somebody who considers themselves agnostic or just doesn't have religion as part of their life I guess the whole faith story of Andrei Rublev just didn't do much to resonate for me so I guess it's a combination of the pro-religious stuff the combination of the fact that it's more of a biography rather than a dream nightmare thing or can't trust reality thing it's just less of an enticing narrative for me. But, you know, look, after 20 years of being a cinephile, I guess it is always interesting to sit down and watch one of these major films and actually have my own opinion on it. Well, that, oh, yeah, that was an interesting take. And I love that you ended that with a compliment for Matteo as well, just to ease the, those punches. And I, I will uh, start by saying I completely agree. I had... I also never thought of the bell as a metaphor or some kind of reference to filmmaking itself. So that's a very interesting read and one that certainly works. As I'm somewhere in between uh, you guys, though I still think it's a great film. So I guess I'm closer to Tom and Mathieu, even though it's just so far away from Stalker, Mirror, Solaris, etc. That it, that distance feels very big. I just, I just can't understand how Andrei Rublev could be described as more conventional because, if anything, it is, well, anything but that. Like you mentioned, so you start off with this really immersive, very confusing as well, uh, prologue, which can only really have thematic references to the rest of his film. It doesn't involve Andrei. It, it's about this glorious flight in the air and conquering in the air and, and perhaps also failing at it's a stunningly shot film the camera work is is amazing and then once that is done right it does become more calm but i don't think that the kind of episodes we start to get are in any way normative i mean the first episode are literally just these three monks walking through the rain, taking shelter, watching this play, and then one of them being implied to report, report the person for blasphemy and then having him taken away. It's just these monks just coming in, sitting, watching, and then uh, an engagement of violence comes in. And in so much of this work, despite the film being called Andrei Rublev, Andrei is just watching he is very rarely the driving force. Things are happening around him. And these things can be uh, done in either very quiet scenes, like that first real episode, or it can be all-out visceral extravaganza, like in the pagan scene where you have the dancing and the chase in the massive raid sequence, uh, which is so terribly violent uh, and of truly epic proportions. And the, the film feels very varied. It feels like it is really trying to cover so much of uh, Russia's history rather than Rublev himself. Uh, and to also interplay these religious elements that you mentioned, Sol. And I, I really agree. I think people who are not 
religions may take slightly less away from this work simply because of all of the religious gravitas and implications from the ending that I think we'll talk about much later, but, but which clearly could have much higher resonance with people of the Christian religion. But it is just such an large epic with truly varied visuals going from these more quiet, serene moments to all-out battles, if you will. And I just I could never uh, consider this film conventional. It just seems to break almost any conventional narrative strains just by its episodic nature where its protagonist is far more often just an observer than this active force driving the plot forward. I will say, unlike Tom and Mathieu, it's probably the Tarkovsky films that loses my attention the most. Not a lot, but it feels like some of these scenes perhaps go on a little bit longer than they could have, or it doesn't feel as tight as some of his later work, but it is a great effort, and uh, it's just such a spectacularly impressive work. I just thought I'd jump in and clarify. Maybe I didn't make it clear before. It's not so much that I consider um, Andrei Rublev to be a conventional film. I just consider it to be conventional by comparison. So you've got Ivan's childhood, which is going out between dreams, nightmares, and reality, with it all getting very blurry. And then you've got Solaris on the other side, which is, again, very blurry between what is real and what's not real. And then you've got this film wedged in between, which, for me, is conventional by comparison. So I agree the chapter structure and everything, it's not entirely conventional. It's not like the average biopic, but still it's not quite the reality mind bender for me that Ivan's Childhood and Solaris both are in different ways. And not to be negative, I'm just going to end off with a little bit of a joke or something I was going to mention, but I've forgotten. So that metaphor about the bell sequence and about the bell being uh, like constructing a film, it's a really great one. And the whole idea that maybe, you know, this is how Tarkovsky feels, that creating this film is like creating this bell. That's awesome. And I'm wondering if he's also got this fear that he would end up being beheaded if he doesn't actually successfully complete the film. Okay, so I'll, I'll pass on to somebody else now. Well, I mean, given how the Soviet Union worked, uh, I mean, that's not an unrealistic fear. I mean, not not literally beheaded, right? But not being able to work anyway. That actually leads into what I was going to say about the film quite nicely. But first of all, I just wanted to touch upon the pure wonder of the first scene that both Sol and, and Chris mentioned. I think I remember the first time I watched Andrew Rublev, I was just totally transfixed and enchanted by this scene. It's just incredible. The, the camera work on it is amazing. And it really brings you into this strange historical world. You know, we get to see this man who invents a, a flying machine and potentially he's being scorned and chased by lots of people who I imagine they're thinking it's it's witchcraft. And this ties into the overarching themes of the film and why it's such an important opener for the film because Andre Rublev is about people who, who dedicate their lives to their craft and the tragic toll that this can take upon them if their work perhaps isn't appreciated or isn't appreciated during their lifetime. And this marries up with uh, Saul's joke because, you know, perhaps this plays into Tarkovsky's own fears of how his work is going to be appreciated and also plays into the idea of, of censorship of, of art 
which is something that happened with this film as well. Now, it's interesting that as well as this man who invents a flying machine later on, you've got the young man who is charged with creating a huge bell and he faces certain death if it is not completed to the expected standard. Then, of course, you've got Andrei Rublev, the infamous iconographer, who is so distraught when his work is destroyed during the raid, which is this breathtaking battle sequence which culminates in a a devastating sequence when a a beautiful church is completely ravaged and and destroyed. And he takes a vow of silence because of this. And I just think it's it's a beautiful piece of of cinema. It's an astonishing work. And every time I watch it, I just get completely lost within it and transported to this era in history that feels so alive. And yeah, I think that's why it's a, a masterpiece for me. So a, a lot to respond to, I guess, regarding the, the conventional, the notion that Rublev is conventional, I do think it's more conventional than Tarkovsky's later works. I, I can see that. I don't think it's more conventional than Ivan's childhood. Uh, definitely not. Uh, yes, Ivan's childhood has these surreal sequences, but Andre Rublev, I mean, it starts with this hot air balloon sequence, which is not connected to anything. And at one point, a third of the film is dedicated to a character we've never met before doing something that has nothing to do with anything in terms of narrative, uh, with the church bell sequence. So, I don't know. And, and, and in terms of being visually less interesting, I strongly, strongly disagree. You guys obviously mentioned the more impressive sequences. As, as Sod said, right, the, both the opening sequence and the church bell sequence have very impressive shots. It's also shot in widescreen, which I personally tend to prefer. Um, but there are great shots throughout the film. Uh, during the, the pagan thing, the, the end of that, right, is this, this woman who saved him, Andre Rublev, is uh, fleeing from soldiers who want to capture her, right? And she is crossing this river, she's, she's uh, swimming, and she swims right by Andre Rublev on his boat, and he's just watching helplessly, right? He doesn't help her, he's feeling guilty. And this shot is magnificent. You, you, you follow her just as you change focus from her to him and then back to her. And it's full of great shots like that. In the first sequence, also, you have uh, these shots from inside the shack where there's all um, getting shelter from the rain. And you see there's, uh, I guess, uh, an opening in the shack where you see the exterior. There are shots of horses that are beautiful. I, I don't know. I, I think I think it's a film that is gorgeous throughout. Uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm surprised that you would say it's less visually interesting. I, I, I strongly disagree with that. Regarding the religious aspect, personally, I'm, I'm also an agnostic. I guess I was raised Catholic, so maybe I have more of a connection, but I think it's more a question of spirituality, of uh, finding your place in the world, of knowing what you're here to do, of giving a meaning to your life, right? And maybe people can respond to that or not, right? But clearly, the whole film is about these people who find something to do that is elevating them in some way. I mean, literally with the guy with the hot air balloon at the start, but you've got the jester who is entertaining the people who we meet again at the end. We've got, obviously, all of the artists and what Tom uh, talked about, I think, well, about the relationship between the artist and the people who, who, uh, who I guess, make his work possible, right? Uh, both with the whole thing about André Rublev going to another place, uh, having to have a master and having to compromise in some ways, and then losing his faith. And, I mean, it really explores, essentially, how you find meaning in your life, which I think is not an idea that is exclusively religious. I think it can speak to many people who uh, don't have a religious faith. Yeah, I'm sorry we can't agree on 
the uh, visuals of Andrei Rublev. I guess, you know, it's just, again, for me, just the um, comparison and I guess maybe having uh, Ivan's childhood fresh in mind. I guess I just absolutely love the nightmare and dream sequences in Ivan's childhood. And, you know, other than those like crane ones are the ones that come up, um, you know, up into the sky where it pulls back. Uh, the visuals for me, I don't know. I mean, the camera does move around a bit, which is nice, but a lot of it is just shot in medium shot. And I guess maybe, I don't know, just because of the type of sequences, it didn't quite stand out to me the way that sometimes in Ivan's childhood, I'm like, wow, this is really a really gripping nightmare that we're in the middle of. So, yeah, look, I don't know. It's not a visually boring film as such, but it's just one where a lot of it really just felt just me just looking at filmed actions. Um, aside from those, you know, striking parts or whatever, but even, you know, the uh, first one with the uh, balloon, hot air balloon going through the sky, which is probably my favourite part of the entire film, even that's actually very similar to what was already done at the beginning of Ivan's childhood, where Ivan is imagining himself going through the sky. It's not quite the same thing, but it is really interesting that both films begin with a similar shot or a similar sort of sequence, and I guess Ivan's childhood is my favourite of those two sequences. But it actually is interesting how similar films are, at least in how they begin. I'm not sure if we've mentioned the length of the shots in Andrew Rublev yet, because that is one of the things that works really well for me, because Tarkovsky's got these huge epic action sequences with brilliant roaming view of the action. And they go on for quite some time. And that, to me, is really impressive, the amount of work it must have taken to coordinate everything particularly in the, the bow sequence at the end, it's really impressive when you consider all of the actors involved and all the stuff that's going on in the background because you've got like these, I think it's like the castle walls and you can see people wandering around around them far away. And it really just brings the whole story to life for me. And one thing that I didn't notice on first viewing in the film because I think I saw Andrew Rublev and Ivan's childhood with quite some time between them initially, but re-watching them within the same week. I obviously realised that the actor who played Ivan in Ivan's Childhood is the same who plays the man who is constructing the bell in Andrew Rublev, and it really struck me that there's a scene in Ivan's Childhood where Ivan raises a bell in this disused building and rings it, and it's, it's just a nice little touch that Tarkovsky has then come back to this idea in his next film, whether it was planned or unplanned, who knows, but I just find it a really nice little link between the two films. Yeah, I noted the bell too in, in Ivan's childhood. There are definitely a few echoes throughout his filmography. Sol mentioned the similar first scenes, right, in Ivan's childhood and in Andrei Rublev. You also have a shot here, um, which is a shot that may be innoc innocuous. I don't remember which section it, it is, but he's shooting just uh, plants in the river, which are kind of flowing with the river. And it's a shot that's almost identical to a shot in Solaris, which I, I, know, I remember very well from Solaris. I, I don't know. I find it a memorable shot. It's arguably better in color, but it's a very similar shot. And yeah. I think in Ivan's childhood, you also see some icons, uh, which I guess made me thought of this. And obviously in his later films, he comes back to, to Andre Rublev a few times. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And one of the things I was noticing here was that a lot of the techniques he would use later in his career is finally showing up. Like we mentioned that he's been shooting water before, but this is where you literally see true textures uh, and variables in the water, the way he captures 
foam and shoots things that are at the uh, bottom of the river. It's just visually uh, spectacular. This is also where you see, uh, you know, how he will add in dust or things floating in the air. A lot of the techniques that he essentially will follow through his entire career are done for the first time right here. And uh, it's just beautiful to just see the origin of it all. Yeah, you're right. There's, a, there's, there's that scene with the snow in the church. I mean, come on, Sol. What more do you need? Hey, look, I'm sorry. I know it's one of your favorite films. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just giving you an honest reaction to it. And as I said before, uh, start when I was talking about it, you know, I've seen this film after 20 years of being a cinephile. I've seen this film after watching Solara seven times, Stalker three times. I have his childhood twice or whatever. So I'm coming at it from a different angle. I guess coming from a different angle with that sort of baggage. Um, yeah, obviously I'm going to look for those sort of cues in uh, an earlier work by him. And if I can't find those cues, then yeah, I think it's you know, inevitable that it's going to, um, you know, cause me to react in a different way. I think that's a good point in a way, because Andrew Rubin is probably the calmest of his films. I mean, this is actually one of the ways it is the most unique work he did, because it is more transcendental. It is more about what's going on in the subtext and what Andre is observing, or the, just the fact that he is observing rather than participating in all of the questions the audience is left with because of that. Because it is a film that asks a lot of questions of the audience and have, gives us a lot to ponder on in terms of the events and the relationship between the church and the state and these and the people living in these times. But it is, even with these you know, big battle sequences or this sudden violence, it is a film that is in many ways, very calm and serene. It takes its time. Stalker obviously does that as well. Many of his films have long sequences. But these films, like you mentioned, Sol, they tie in with something more overtly magical or suspenseful. And Andrei Rublev doesn't do that. It, it's In that way, it is a bit of an oddity in, in Tarkovsky's work. But I think that might also be why it is so important to Tom and Mathieu in particular. Like why it... it this is the one that stands out because it does something that none of Tarkovsky's other films really did. And I do think, like Matthew mentioned, there's just so much to dive into here and discuss that I think we've been talking for about this film for over half an hour. Maybe not when we edit this down a little bit and you listen to it, but I think we've been definitely talking about it. Actually, looking at the clock, I think we've been talking about it for about 40 minutes at this point. And we haven't even been diving into most of these sections or most of uh, the situations and how Rublev dealt with it or how we're left to respond to it. And I think that just speaks so much to the richness of Andrei Rublev. Yeah, it's, it's an epic. I mean, that, that's how I would describe it, right? Which is definitely not something we can say about his later films, which to be clear, I, I love as well. You're right, as Tolkien and Solaris are much more internal, even though this obviously is asking many internal questions. There is this grand spectacle to it, right? There are these sequences with those horses and of the church sequence, it has a billion extras. Yeah, it, it definitely has this, this idea of grand spectacle, which is not in any other attack of... So what's quite interesting is that while obviously the most common detract when you go out and you read Letterboxd and whatever, the most common thing which is said negatively about Andrei Rublev is that it's boring and well I don't think it really was boring it didn't quite uh, engage me the same way as Tarkovsky's other films did but the second most common complaint is about the animal violence now for me as a film goer I guess I always have a very 
I don't know. I don't know if it's like emotionally withdrawn or whatever, but I've always got a very disciplined way of looking at it. When I see animal violence on screen, I don't, you know, mentally process, or oh, was this animal really hurt, or was it just made to look like it was hurt for the sake of filmmaking? But I know there's a lot of people out there who do research into it. They find out whether animals are really killed or not. And a lot of the negatives for uh, Andre Rublev on Letterboxd, beyond the um, epic length and being boring and inverted commas, is complaints about the animal violence. So look, for me, it wasn't really an issue because for me, I guess they're like, what happens to like the horse when like it falls down or whatever? Those were the parts that stood out the most to me. But I'm just wondering for any of the three of you, whether you've had issues with the animal violence in the film. I guess I'm like you, Saul, um, in that when I watch a film, I don't tend to think too much about how it was done. It's not just a question of animal violence, it's just generally, right? And so I'm generally into the film, into the reality of the film, I don't think about it that much. And so I definitely did not even notice anything the first time I watched it. And this time, I knew there was those complaints, and I guess I don't see that much of it. Now, there are two different cuts of Andre Rublev, and I watched the shorter one, uh, which is just around three hours, uh, as opposed to three hours and 20 minutes. So maybe there's more. I guess I see there's a horse falling down at one point, and maybe it was hurt. I obviously don't defend animal cruelty if, if there was any, which uh, it looks like there was. Uh, but I guess it doesn't really affect me in terms of watching the film, so uh, I don't have much more to add on that. I think I'm in a similar position to Matteo. Obviously, I don't condone animal violence, and it is a, a sensitive subject and quite a delicate matter. But when I watch films, I try and you know, focusing on the film for, for what it is and trying not to think outside of, of how that imagery was made. So to me, it didn't really have a huge impact on the film, uh, but I can certainly understand why it would detract from the enjoyment of the film. Yeah, I, I think I um, have a similar outlook on it, though. Knowing that the horse falling out of those stairs uh, was, uh, like, it was quite clear that that horse was uh, severely hurt. I think it was killed. Um, that is, obviously, I'm not sure if that scene was really needed either, but, but and I think, you know, in terms of ruining the film for me, it, it certainly didn't. Uh, I think it's, it's, it, it would be happy with it being cut or since it happened, it, it's still there. It's part of its history, perhaps not, but it didn't ruin the film for me. And going from that perhaps important topic to a slightly more conventional one for us and leaning us towards the very end of our episode, let's just quickly go into the end of Andrei Rublev. I also noticed that we got a request from Saul here to use a specific line, which fit with what I just said. So uh, he's saying, speaking of ruining the film, now we will ruin the ending, which is just a perfect way to lead us into the spoiler section. Spoiler warning. And there's a lot of pack here. So obviously there is the final shot itself, where the entire, not the final shot, but the final small epilogue itself, where... The entire film has been in black and white so far, but then, as our overall story ends, we cut to Andrei Rublev's art, and it's in color, and you get to experience them fully, and it's such a contrast to the rest of the film. But I think the perhaps more interesting thing to dive into and discuss is the ending of the final chapter, where we follow this young bell maker for the last 40 minutes or so. It's a very long section. You've seen him be so assured assure of himself, telling everybody how to make this spell. But once it comes together, he suddenly breaks down in tears. Throughout all of this, Andrei Rublev has been watching him very quietly. And 
as the bell is revealed, it's beautiful. Somehow, after everything seems to have gone perfectly, just as he said, he breaks down in Andrei Rublev's arms in tears and he confesses that he lied. He was so starving that he took on this job at the peril of death, pretending that his father, who was a master bellmaker, had passed down the secret, which he had not. He was sure this would end with his death, but the bell is perfect. And I think, at least my reading of this, is that there's a very strong implication on the part of Tarkovsky that a miracle has occurred here, that Andrei Rublev, who is now a venerated saint, made this miracle come true that the bell worked and saved this boy's life, and that we as the audiences are meant to feel, or at least contemplate, this possibility and feel a sense of awe. And I think, tying in with what we discussed a little bit earlier, this is possibly where people who are religious, or perhaps uh, have a religious upbringing and people who don't make clash slightly because unlike his later films which do delve into fate but then more on a psychological level of what it means to the individual characters here in this moment i think the emphasis is also more on what the audience takes away from it but i would really love to hear your thoughts on it now that's an interesting take chris i did not interpret it that way I don't know if Tarkovsky really believes in miracles. He has a story about making André Rublev where he said uh, he had lost the script of André Rublev, the whole script, and there was no other copy. And 20 minutes later, he lost it in the street, right? And 20 minutes later, a taxi pulled up and gave him the script back. But he does not describe that as a miracle. He's just like, wow, that's amazing. So I did not interpret it that way. I just interpreted it as, you know, Rublev's faith in the possibility for humanity to do something great has been restored by, by what happens uh, because he lost it earlier because of his own uh, failings and because of the brutality and the violence he has witnessed. But yeah, I guess I just saw it as something more down to earth than that, but it's definitely a, an interesting interpretation. I also didn't interpret it as a miracle, but it, it is quite a nice possibility to think that Rublev's presence had some grand implication for the, the construction of this bell. And much more aligned with Matteo's version of events, whereby it's just chance that the, the bell maker has, has managed to pull off this grand feat of constructing a bell when he, when he hadn't been passed down the information from his father before him. And that action, the fact that it comes together, restores Rublev's faith in humanity. And I think it's a it's a beautiful scene between Andrei Rublev and the young bellmaker. It's a great note to end the film on. And I also think the subsequent scenes where we change to colour and we get to see all the imagery that Rublev actually created, it's just a nice touch to end the film in a way that it allows the audience to contemplate what has happened before and to just, you know, bask in this beautiful imagery and just kind of digest what you've just seen and, and think about it in, in some way. And then with the, the final images of the horses, I kind of struggled to interpret really what Tarkovsky was, was going for for them. Now, I think I read online something about Tarkovsky saying that the horse is a, a symbolic image or a, a synonym for life, and that's how he, he interprets it. But it doesn't really come across clearly like that so i'm not sure if that's entirely successful those final images but for me overall i'd still consider the film to be his masterpiece and as we mentioned before quite a transcendental piece of filmmaking 
just without going into it being a miracle, I actually think what I would say is maybe more it's providence, right? There's this idea of, again, what you're born to do, right? Of what your function in this world is, is what your meaning of your life is. And maybe it's more like the bellmaker found the meaning of his life, which is making a bell, even though he didn't know exactly how to do it, which is kind of miraculous, but slightly different. Like my other co-hosts, I didn't take Chris's uh, interpretation either, but I do like it about it being, you know, a miracle, I guess, seeing a miracle, restoring uh, Rublev's faith. In terms of the actual ending, I think that ending with the guy breaking down in Andre's hands is quite potent. I guess the subsequent part after that doesn't quite do so much for me. I mean, it is interesting seeing all his paintings, but we're seeing all of them in, like, degraded, so, like, not in really, you know, good, light condition. So, I don't know, it just sort of let me go, hmm. But then again, I guess, you know, it sort of shows, you know, maybe history hasn't been kind to him, maybe, that these uh, artworks he's created hasn't been restored. But anyway, that left me questioning that choice, especially because it's like a five-minute sequence, you know, did we nearly spend that long in it? And then we get the horses there, which just feel a bit random. But I guess to me, between, you know, as I already mentioned with the um, hot air balloon, a lot of the film felt a bit random to me. So I guess overall, it didn't really, you know, stand out as so much of a negative for me. Yeah, I have to agree with all of you that the horses uh, feel a bit off. I, I also did a research online, and that's what I found as well. So I, I, I can see the reason it was included, and it doesn't hurt the film in any way, but it is a bit of an odd note to end it on. I will actually say this, though. I think that... Mature's interpretation here is fantastic, and next time I rewatch Andrei Rublev, I will definitely be watching it with that in mind to see if it works from a reading of Andrei's fate in humanity being restored rather than something more theological. So that is absolutely fantastic. And also, I really love that your interpretations, Tom and Mathieu, of uh, the film being about human craft and people making something of their lives and creating something from scratch, be it the hot air balloon or indeed a beautiful, stunning bell. Because that is also such a great metaphor, looking into your metaphor uh, about filmmaking uh, for Andrei Tarkovsky's career and the kind of magic and purpose he managed to bring out there. And that's also just such a lovely note to end the entire episode on, that Andrew Rublev in so many ways to show us, along with uh, Ivan's childhood and the steamroller and the violin, what Andrei Tarkovsky was capable of. And we can promise you, we will get back to other Tarkovsky films later. We have more episodes planned. We also already discussed Solaris in quite a bit of detail. The Granddad was in a Versus episode, so you can go back and you can find 2001 Versus Solaris in a epic sci-fi space exploration showdown. I highly recommend that you listen to it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.